The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, uh, one of the things that we do at Sacred City Church this One of our distinctives is we preach exegetically. That means we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through entire books of the Bible. And so we have been making our way through the book of 1 Peter over the last, uh, it's probably been at least 12 weeks. Uh, And so at this point, we're only halfway through the second chapter. So we still have a good 12 more weeks or so to make our way through this this book. But today, we kind of come upon a, a turning point in this letter that Peter has written Um, in the first century. Up until now, in Peter's letter, he has been primarily focused on informing his original audience on what God has done in Christ. He begins his letter by saying that you have been born again by God's mercy to a new identity. Now, as as having a new identity that's rooted in Christ, what comes with it is a new hope. You have a whole new perspective on life. And it's all based upon experiencing God's mercy. And you'll see that's what it takes to generate a Christian. That's what it means. To be a Christian means that you have had a radical encounter with God's mercy. That's the only way that you can become a Christian. And this isn't a one-time experience. A lot of people talk about the moment when they come, came to Christ. That's when, the moment when God's mercy was so evident in their life where they realized that there was some sort of, of transformation. But, but really, the Christian life is a life that is steeped in the mercy of God. So as we live as Christians, we're not only drawing from the well of mercy for our salvation, but for all of life, everyday life. And this next chunk of scripture, Peter is going to show us how or why we need to draw from God's mercy for everyday life. He's going to show us how God's mercy informs everyday living. Now, for those of you who are uh, a little bit more bent towards being legalistic, right? You like the rules, you like to follow them to know that you're doing the right things, right? This is finally some practical application for you. We're coming to the point where where Peter is saying, all of this that I've told you before about your identity now informs the way that you live, and this is what it looks to practically live out that identity. He's going to say, if you have experienced God's mercy, if you've experienced the gospel, your life is drastically going to change. You don't just go on the way that you were living before, that there is always, always transformation that happens when you encounter God's mercy. Now, when we talk to Christians, there's always this question, at least in my experience, when you're talking to Christians, you're in a missional community, somebody comes to faith, there's always this question, like, how do I know that I've been born again? How do I know that I've actually experienced God's mercy? How do I know that my life is being transformed? Now, most people would probably look towards some sort of internal transformation that happens, right? There's a change in what you believe, 
right? They'll ask you, well, do you, do you feel different? Has your heart changed? Has, has your mindset shifted? Is there something that's gone on internally that, that makes you feel different? Now, for certain, there is this internal transformation, right? You experience God's mercy. Your, your heart may become more squishy, right? You become more compassionate, more tenderhearted. You, you love people more. But on the other side of that, some of us are already rather tenderhearted people. That when a, a critical word comes up against us, it tends to crush us. It, it, it bears this weight that it seems that like we cannot shoulder, and so it crushes us. So in that instance, the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel, gives you thick skin. It changes your heart to, to know that your identity is secure. So no matter what people say of you or how people think of you or, or what they say about you, that you're secure in your identity in Christ. And like I said, certainly when you experience the gospel, there is this internal transformation. But when we only look at transformation on, on the internal things, we, we tend to be a bit biased, right? Because if I'm looking internally, I can say, yeah, I, th- I think my heart has changed. But what Peter is gonna tell us in verses 11 and 12 is that not only do you see internal transformation, but external transformation happens in tandem with your internal transformation. In fact, the Puritans, when speaking about this external transformation, they would say the first person who should know that you've been born again is your horse. Right? Why your horse? Right? Back in those days, obviously, 1600s, 1500s, they didn't, they didn't have cars. And so the way that they got around was on a horse, horse and buggy, what, whatnot. But the reason why the horse would be the first one to be able to tell if you've had a heart change, if, if, if the gospel has actually come in and radically changed your life, is because they're the ones who sees the worst parts of you. Right? The horse sees you in your irritableness. The horse sees them in, in your lack of patience, in the grumbling, in the way that you talk to yourself or the way that you talk about others behind their back. The horse gets to see that part of you. So the idea is here, the, the internal change of the gospel creates this external change that even your horse would notice the difference. Now, we don't have horses these days. Well, somebody might have horses, but we don't use horses like we did back then. So the, the question is, who or how can we verify if there's this, there's been this external change that happens? And I believe by the way that God has wired us to be a people that's saved by the gospel, to live in community and on mission, the first people who can tell if there's a change are those people who we are living in community with. And so today we are gonna dig into these two verses that Peter lays out for us and look and examine what, it, what it's like for us to grow, to live in this mercy that God has shown us. What our lives should look like when we've had this radical internal experience with God's grace and how that flips the script on what it looks like for us to live. What I want to also show you today is that how you live your life in in response to God's grace not only has eternal implications for your life, but for those who are watching you live your life as well. So let us turn to um, 1 Peter chapter 2, 
Verse 11, if, if there's a Bible, I realize some of you in the front, you have pew Bibles. We have other Bibles coming in the way, and on the way um, if you're towards the back. But if you don't own a Bible, we want to encourage you to grab a Bible, take it home with you. Uh, that's our gift to you. And here we go. First um, Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter says, Beloved. Now, that word. Beloved, for the third week in a row, I don't, I don't get very far, right? I, I get one or two words in, and I gotta stop because this word beloved is so profound. See, by using this word, after Peter has just explained their identity, that they're a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, what he's doing is solidifying the Christian's identity as one who is loved. Christian, your primary identification that God looks at you and identifies you with is beloved, that his affections are for you. You don't have to get his attention. You don't don't have to try to muster up something lovable about yourself. His love is already on you. And so he says, beloved, but, but this is also a pastoral moment too. Not only is Peter solidifying the people in the way that God views them, but he's saying, Dear friends, my beloved friends, the people who I, as a pastor, look at with affection and care and compassion. See, Peter is a good pastor. We've seen this already. I've seen this. I've learned so much from, from, from Pastor Peter already going through this, this, um, this letter so far. Because one of the things that Peter does is just he interweaves their identity that God looks at them and how God sees them, what God has done for them in the gospel with how this shapes their life. So he never says, all right, you're loved, now you've gotta live this way. Boom, 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 here's the list of things you need to do. Everything is grace-laced. So much grace everywhere. But We also see Peter's affections here for the people. And while he is physically distant from these people, the people he calls elect exiles, the beloved, his beloved, he cares deeply for them. And so I want to take this opportunity as your pastor, Sacred City, and I want to tell you that I care for you in this way, that my affections are for you, that my prayers are with you. This month has been a tremendous blessing to me being Pastor Appreciation Month and to get those letters, those handwritten notes that were so meaningful to me and those gifts that you've given me. It means so much to me. So I wanna say thank you, but I also wanna tell you that I do care for you, that I love you. And the way that I look at you, you're not a number, you're not a way for me to, to grow a big ministry. You're not some sort of stepping stool for me to promote myself. I view you as the sheep that, that Jesus himself has entrusted to me, to look after, to care for, to walk alongside of. So my affections are for you. I'm so grateful that I get to be a guy, just a, a guy that walks alongside of you as your story unfolds and God brings redemption to your life. So I want to affirm you, Sacred City Church, in your identity that you are beloved by God. But you are also my beloved, my dear friends. And it's an honor to pastor you. Like Peter, I have this burden for you. 
Because what we see Peter cares so deeply for these people that he is willing to have a hard word for them, an urgent word. Now Peter, while he loves these people dearly, he's not all lovey-dovey. Because if you have affections for something, you want what's best for that person. It means you're willing to say the hard word, the urgent word, when necessary. Now, our, counter, our, our culture has this counterfeit version of love that tells us if you love someone, you're content with the way that they are. If you love someone, you'll just leave them alone. And the inverse of this, what, what this implies, that this, this version of love that culture is trying to get us to buy into, it means that, that if you're trying to get them to change, if, you're tr- if you love somebody, you're trying to get them to change, you don't actually love them. Right, because the culture's version of love is just basically tolerance. And tolerance is a complete disregard for beauty. Because if you look at someone you love, see, this is what it, lo- this is what it means to look at someone you love. You, you not only love them for who they are in that exact moment, but you love them because you see the unlimited amount of potential that they have in Christ. So someone who loves another person you not only love them in that one moment right there, in the moment right there, but you love them to become what they were meant to be in Jesus. And so this means that from time to time, we must have an urgent word for those people that we love. We must have a hard word for the people that we love most. This is what Peter has for his has this people, right? This is the kind of love, the kind of love that Peter embodies here leads people to flourish in healthy relationships. Now, let me just give a couple examples of this. As parents, from the moment your child is born, you love that kid with a love that has never, never been experienced before in your life. It's a different kind of love. That kid comes out and you're just like, your heart just gushes over them. But as a parent, as that child grows up, you don't just love, like you don't want to love them so they stay a baby forever. You want to love them so that child develops into their full potential. You love them in a way that you're going to discipline them. You're going to have a hard word for them. Because that, at times, is the most loving thing that you could do for your child. Now, the same thing is true of marriage, right? We've got to see a couple stand up here before the altar and make vows to one another, and there is no doubt in my mind that they love each other right now in that moment. Any married couple that stands before God, before witnesses at the altar, they love each other in that one moment. But here's the thing. The love that they have for each other is not a love that, that makes them want to stay where they're at. In fact, when Paul talks about uh, marriage in, in Ephesians 5, he talks about the love of the husband being one that is to sanctify his wife by the, wa- the water, washing of the water of the word. See, real love has an agenda. Real love is meant to take that person you love and launch them into their full potential. Now, if you love someone this way, it means that there will be conflict in your relationship, inevitably, right? But it's a healthy kind of conflict. It's, it's the kind that like when, when the sandpaper is taken to wood, so when the sandpaper is taken to wood, that, that's when the wood gets smoothed out, when the grains are, are nice and flush, make something beautiful, something you want to run your fingers along. Wow, that's a, that's a beautiful piece of, piece of work. See, that's what love is like. Sandpaper 
on the wood, to, to unleash the full potential in someone. So that means that there will be conflict in your life, that someone in your life, if they love you, will inevitably say a hard word to you from time to time. And you might be called to say a hard word to someone you love as well. Now, this is not to upset them. This is not to fight dirty. This is to help launch them into their full beauty, their full potential. Now, this is the essence of discipleship. If you are in a discipleship relationship, you will have conflict in your life. In fact, if you, like I can say this, that if there is no conflict in your life coming from relationships, like people you love and trust, then you're probably not in a discipleship relationship. Because the purpose of discipleship is to make you look more beautiful, to make you look more like Jesus. This is why we live in missional communities. This is why the bulk of our ministry doesn't happen here on Sunday mornings, but in the context of living life on life together in community and on mission. It's by those interactions, by the people that, that love you, that God is trying to sanctify you. And so I can tell you two things, that if, if you step foot into a missional community, here's the first thing that's true. One, you will be loved for the person you are right now. That's what the grace of God does for us. To know that, that when God looks at us in our sinful state, I just reminded of the song, all the fitness God requires is to know your need of him. You don't have to be polished, you don't have to be put together to step foot in a missional community, to step foot in the church. But when you step foot in a missional community, you will be loved for who you are because that is the radical type of love that God has put, shown to us and it's through that that we love others that way. But here's the other thing, that God's love has an agenda to sanctify us. And so when you step foot in a missional community, you will be loved in a way that will launch you into becoming your best. See, people who love you will have a hard word for you. Discipleship is all about becoming more beautiful in Christ, right? That's the agenda of love. But listen, it's not this rigid, you need to be at this checkpoint by now. See, the agenda of love is grace-paced. There's no check marks for you to hit in order for you to be accepted in community. When the grace of God comes upon your life, it changes you. It, it makes you more like Jesus. As we behold the glory of Christ, that we are transformed from one degree of likeness to the next. So Peter here is pastoring. He is discipling these people through this letter. And here is the urgent word that he has for them in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, that's his hard word, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war, which, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And Peter has a twofold instruction for Christians. He says to abstain from or to stay away from the passions of the flesh and to be honorable in all your conduct. Now this kind of seems simple, right? Two-step instructions are usually uh, simple, right? That's how we train our preschoolers, take one or two-step, three-step instructions and follow through. But these, this two-step instruction is far from easy. 
In reality, this is a radical way to live. Following Jesus is radical because we are surrounded by a culture that is driven by the passions, the desires of the flesh. These instinctual desires that that just trigger you to act in a responsive way to everything. It has this mantra it carries with it. It says, I will get what I want by any means necessary, whether that's sexually, economically, relationally, emotionally. And regardless of how these passions of the flesh emerge, at the center of each one of these passions is me. It's self. It's self-motive. In Chapter 2, verse 1, Peter spells out some of these passions of the flesh. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Now these are seemingly little sins, right? Socially acceptable in many regards. But when they are left unchecked, they lead to a catastrophe. In fact, if you flip back a couple of pages in your Bible to James 4, James says, says this in verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see, all of these small desires of the flesh have a potential to blow up, to become major things. This extends further where sexual impurity leads to adultery and broken marriages, where boys are so entrenched in pornography that that they're, they're boys pretending to be men. Exploitation, manipulation, and greed leads to to oppression of employees. It leads to a mistreatment of minorities. These passions of the flesh start out small but escalate rather quickly. What Peter says is that they are waging war against your soul. These passions that a lot of people are bought into, and not just like people outside of the church, but people in the church, like Christians are fighting these temptations, this pull towards the flesh. They are waging war against your soul. They are fighting against the beauty that God intends for you to embody. See, our society is plagued with these desires, with these passions of the flesh in both minor and major ways. For example, a couple weeks ago, when Hugh Hefner passed away, he was trumpeted as a cultural hero among many tabloids and newspaper sources. But in reality, if we survey what Hugh Hefner is responsible for, he is responsible for major damage to the modern family and the rapid decline of sexual morality. But here, when you look at this, Hugh Hefner, as terrible of an impact as he had on the society, he is not responsible for the desires of the flesh. Those were already embedded in every human ever in existence. But Hugh Hefner did, he capitalized unapologetically on those desires of the flesh. See, that's the reality here. 
There is a plethora of desires of passions of the flesh, and they're present in everyone's life. And maybe it's not sexual temptation, but everyone has them. Greed, selfishness, hypocrisy, judgmental. Like the list goes on and on. All of these passions of the flesh that ultimately point back to myself, to, to gratify my own desires. All of these passions of the flesh are ultimately self-centered. And for some people, they're glaring and obvious, and for others, they are subtle. And they fall anywhere on the spectrum in between. But here's the thing, wherever they fall on the spectrum, it's enslaving to you. As they wage war against your soul, it is oppressing you. This means that the desires of your flesh are controlling you. This is what Jesus says in John 8. He says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. That the desires of, of your flesh cause you to lose control over yourself. That you become oppressed. You become a slave to your desires. And that's the irony of it here. Many people think by giving, giving themselves over to the desires of the flesh that they're being liberated that they're doing what they want to do. They lust, they gossip, they're greedy. Right? It's what they want to do. They feel like it's a way of liberation. It's a way to express themselves. But the reality is the passions of the flesh only rob you of your ability to have a say in your life. See, if you're buying into that mindset, to give in to those passions of the flesh, you're getting played, and you're getting played well. The reality is you have no control anymore. If you're doing those things where the flesh is pushing you towards, you are not in control of your life. Your sin is in control of your life. Sin has control of you, and now you are sin's puppet. And so what Peter is telling Christians is do not let sin be your puppet master, right? That was the way of your former life before you were born again, the former ignorance that Peter says you have been saved from. And so he says the only way to avoid this is to steer clear of the passions of the flesh. But this is where the difficulty lies, right? How do I know as a Christian if I am being steered by my passions of the flesh, so here's a quick diagnostic question that I want to lay out for you. Ask yourself this. Are my actions, my thoughts, my words self-promoting? Or are they about others? Because the fleshly desires will always be about self-promotion. Right, even the good things that you might do in life can be tainted by your fleshly desires, right? You can be generous, you can be hospitable, which is seemingly other-focused things to be doing, right? You open up your home, you give away your money, you give away your time. But if you do it to get acknowledgement, get it to, to be recognized, then you're doing it for yourself and not for the benefit of others. See, that is how elusive, that's how deceiving sin can be, that even our good intentions, the things that look good on the outside, can be laced with sin. So the way that we must fight against this is 
that in all things we do, they be pointing toward what God has done in your life. See, you you can still be hospitable, but now you're not hospitable to get acknowledgement from other people. You're hospitable because you realize that in the gospel, God has been hospitable towards you. So this is an overflow of what you have received from God already, which points to the only way that I'm like this, the only way that I can be generous or hospitable is because God has been generous and hospitable toward me already. See, when you operate like that, you point back to God. It's not about you. It's about what God has already done in your life. Everything that is anti-fleshly desire points back to God. That's how you know if you're, you're avoiding, you're abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Does it point back to God? This gets to the root of what, what Peter is saying here in verse 12. He, he continues on. First Peter 2, chapter 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, at a plain reading of this, of this text, you see that you are charged to conduct yourself honorably, right? In all your conduct, be honorable among the Gentiles. Now, let me just, when he uses the word Gentile there, because that, that might be kind of a strange word to us. When, when Peter uses the word Gentile, it's, it's sort of an old, old Jewish way of saying non-believer, Right, that's a way that the Jews used to classify themselves. Jews were the people of God. Gentiles were everybody else outside of that. Now, Peter is transforming this language. Now, in a sense, Jews, who were the children of Abraham, is everyone who's been brought into, God, brought into God's family through the blood of Christ. And Gentiles, in this sense, means everyone who is still left unreached by the gospel. And so what Peter is saying here is that you should live your life in a way that non-believers look at you and they can say, I respect that. Right? That all your conduct, that even though, even though non-believers might not buy into this Jesus stuff that you're all about, non-believers look at you and say, wow, what they're doing, it is, it's pretty special. There's something about that that I respect, that I, I like. See, that's how we can know if, if we as Christians are living in our identity as, as Christians, right? That, that non-Christians come along and they look and they say, well, I, I don't really get all this stuff that, that this Christian is all about, but I can respect what he's living for. I can respect the way that he con- conducts himself or herself, right? That they must be doing something right. And so that means that there's a conduct, a way of living that's appealing and honorable even to an unbeliever. Right? How you take care of your home, how you raise your children, how you treat your neighbors, how you serve for the good of the city, and on and on and on. These are things that outsiders look in at Christians and say, wow, I can respect that. See, but even more than that external conduct, Peter is actually moving into the motives of your conduct. That all your conduct, from, from intention to execution to exaltation, that it be honorable to God. That's who you're honoring with your conduct, that in everything that you do, you are tipping your hat to the grace of God. 
See, one of the things that Christians need to like have in your vocabulary, if someone looks at you and they see your good deeds, they see the way that you're loving your family, what Christians need to be able to say is, man, I could not do it if it were not for the grace of God. See, this is what it means to live an honorable life, that everything you do, from intentions to motive to, to, to execution, be about God and honoring him and what he's done in your life. And Peter tells Christians to live in an honorable way. Not just to believe something, right? Not just to believe the gospel, but to believe the gospel and let that form the way that you live. That you would execute on your belief in living well. Why? Because. This is why. Because people are watching you. People have their eyes on you. You see, Christians, Christians are kind of weird, right? We do weird stuff, right? We get together on Sunday. We're not at brunch right now. We're, we're gathering together and we're worshiping. We're lifting their arms in worship. We're, we're professing the ugly stuff about ourselves, and then we're, we're hearing the absolution of the good news. And then we live differently, right? We don't just do Sunday church on Sunday, you know? Like, we live as the church, And outsiders, non-believers, are watching us, not in some like creepy, like stalking kind of way, but they're keeping an eye on us. They're trying to see what we're up to. And you know what they're trying to see? They're trying to see if this faith stuff is real. Right? They're trying to see if this Jesus stuff actually works. Christians make a radical claim that nothing in life is better than God, and we try to live like that. We do it imperfectly, right? That's why we confess sin together every week. But that is what we profess as Christians, that God is ultimate, that we can base our life on him. And Christians, non-Christians, are watching to see if this is actually true, if your actions are actually in line with what you profess. Now, if they aren't, Non-Christians will call you on it, right? They'll say you're being hypocritical. You're bought into this fairy tale. You're sold out onto this phony religion. See, this is the response that people have to, to Christians when they see that we're not actually living in light of these identities that we claim. You guys are just like us. You're just hiding behind some religion. See, this is what Peter is saying when he, when he speaks of, of people who will talk of you as evildoers. They'll just say, hey, you're all about this Jesus stuff, but you're living just like we are. There's no difference. So they'll, they'll look right through your Christian facade and say, you're just like us. There's nothing different. But, but because this is why, here's why. Because non-Christians get it more than nominal Christians do. Non-Christians get it more than nominal Christians do because they can look at, at someone whose life is not aligned with the gospel and they can say, you guys are just, you're just making stuff up. See, if you're not living a life that has been radically changed by the gospel, the chances are you don't actually believe the gospel in the first place. 
If your external conduct isn't being transformed for the better, then it is unlikely that genuine internal transformation by God's mercy has actually happened. And so, church, this is why it's so essential for us to have a radical encounter with God's mercy internally, that we know our need of him, that that we find that need supplied in Jesus. See, here's the danger. If you aren't living a life to honor God both internally and externally, what will happen is people will dismiss God. That God has placed you here on earth as ambassadors. Last week we saw the passage um, here in, let me flip to it, First Peter. He says that, that you were chosen, that God chose you out of darkness, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. This is why Christians are here, to show the world what, Jesus, what God is like. And if we're not living in our identities, people will want to dismiss God. And here's the thing. There is nothing more appealing in this world than seeing Christians live the way they were meant to live. There is something intrinsically desirous about that. Remember for a moment, if you go back to Acts chapter 2, where uh, Peter just gets done preaching the gospel and all of a sudden God's spirit comes and fills, fills his people up and, and we see people being converted left and right, thousands of people coming to faith that day. And then in the days that follow, they're, they're living life together, they're breaking bread together, sharing their needs together, they're praying for, with one another, they're worshiping together, they're doing life together. They're loving each other in a radical way. And hundreds of people are being added to their number day by day. There is something appealing about Christians living like Christians. In that day, the way that people saw these Christians living, they came to know what God was like. This is why our actions now are so important. The way that we conduct ourselves now is because other people will either dismiss God or come to God based on the way that they see us living. They want to see if our profession lines up with our actions. Friends, let me ask you. Are you living like you believe this. If you believe this were true, that people will either be drawn to God or push God away based upon the way that you live, does that influence your conduct now? Are you living in a way that people see right through? They see through the fakeness? Or are you living in a way that leads people to praise God? Because that's what Peter says will happen. On the day of visitation, because they have seen our conduct, they will, it will lead to them glorifying God. Why? Because they have been drawn to God. They have been saved by the gospel. See, Christian, God desires to use you to show the watching world what he is like. And while there is an actual declaration that is necessary for us to, to proclaim, to tell people of the good news, People will not listen to us until they have seen us live what we speak about. Now, if I were to leave this sermon right here, this would be accurate Bible teaching. We've gone through what the text says. We've pulled out the meaning. 
But if I leave it right here, you would be left without the power to actually make and keep this kind of change. To, to put this on you would literally crush you. To think, oh my gosh, am I messing up someone's eternity? See, what you need more than application points is to come face to face with God's mercy that compels you to live such a way. That you need to catch a glimpse of Jesus if you're going to imitate him. See, when you step back from what Peter is calling people into here, to, to abstain from the desires of the flesh, to live a life that is honorable and conduct before the Gentiles, there's only one person who's ever done this right. There's only one person, and it's not you. Jesus stepped into this world. Jesus stepped into this world to show everyone what God was like. And some people, a lot of people had different responses to him. Some people were drawn to him because they saw Jesus as the manifestation of God, the pure love, pure beauty here in the flesh. They were drawn to him. Other, other people didn't like it. Even though Jesus was doing it perfectly, they pushed him away. They rejected him. See, and Jesus lived a life where he completely abstained from the flesh. He was always directed by a love of God. He never had self-centered motives. His motives for coming were based upon the glory of God, not for himself. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. That's how committed he was to God's mission. But here's what you need to know, Christian. That Jesus went to the cross to atone for your failures. When you could not abstain from the flesh, when you gave in to the flesh, maybe you gave into it last night, this morning, whenever. You're gonna give into it this afternoon. When you give in to that, the passion, the desires of the flesh, Jesus died to atone for those sins, to, to wipe you clean, to make you new. But Jesus also died to give you his spirit, to strengthen you, to enable you, to give you the power that resurrected him from the dead, to live inside of you and to step into the spirit, to abstain from the flesh and to live a life that is honorable, to live a life that points back to Jesus. And, and church, my prayer is that we would live in a way that is so dependent upon the spirit of God that when people look at us, they say there's no way that these people can do this in their own strength. That's my prayer. I pray that this church would live in a way that, that outsiders look in and say, these people are different, they might be a little weird, but the way they live, there's no way they could do this on their own strength. Why? Because we are drawing from the source of Christ. That he was our all in all. He was everything that we couldn't be. And he strengthens us to step into abstaining from the flesh, giving honor and glory to God in all things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus this morning. And while you've called us to live such a life, it is, it is a, a high calling, it's a big deal not something to take lightly. Father, in our own strength, we are completely incapable because we have been bound by sin. 
By your grace, you have freed us, you have liberated us so that we no longer have to live for sin, but now we get to live for you. That your gospel is good news to us, that we are, that we are just blown away by the sweetness of it. Father, I ask that you would transform us, not only on the inside, but transform us inside out, to be a people who live in all things for your honor and fame. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.